Welcome to Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi, a passionate and relentless pursuit of exploring how individuals use good judgment in everyday life, both in their personal and professional lives. There's a quote that says, labels are for filing, labels are for clothing. Labels are not for people. Rehema Issa, who I call Re, defies labeling and is my guest today for this new episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Somi. The closest label she fits in is the one of African and an enthusiastic advocate for women and intra-Africa trade. Re, thank you so much for making time for this conversation. The pleasure is all mine. It's such an honor to be here, actually. It's been a long time coming, my friend. That it is, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I met you when we were already in the working environment. Mm. So can you tell me a bit about your upbringing? Uh, what was... What brought you joy? I'm more interested in the things that brought you joy. And do you have siblings? You know, what's your family set up like? Um, gosh, I am a third child of six. Whoa. Yeah, you wouldn't believe that, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I always say six with my mom and dad. Okay. And my dad was quite the Dora the Explorer, African yeah. man. Um, so I know two other siblings. One's mm. passed away, so oh, altogether eight. But I grew up with my five siblings. And I was born in Zambia, and so my two brothers I were born. I didn't know that. I know. Yeah. I realized that, yeah. right? So my two brothers were born in Tanzania, mm-hmm. um, and so my parents then moved to Zambia. Um, I guess following the African economic, you know, uh, boom, booms mm. that were happening. So they moved to Zambia, and I think copper was booming. My dad used to work for like Pfizer. Mm-hmm. Um, he was. He's a vet. So he's an African man, oh, wow. born in the 1940s, who mm-hmm. chose the veterinary um, profession. After Zambia, and I think things were going down, Pfizer relocated to South Africa, and they made the choice to go to Botswana. Mm. And so my two youngest sisters were actually born in Botswana. You're all of different nationalities. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So interesting. That's the first thing, yeah. And so when you ask me what brings me joy, I think there's so many life experiences that we've had. Um, I always talk about being a, used to call it a third culture kid. I don't know if I should Mm. say a third culture adult. Um, But I think being born into those multiple um, living um, experiences, those multiple worlds and realities, I think finding joy was about finding home wherever you are, finding a connection and a network and just being at peace and doing the things that make you happy. Basically speaking, I'm just that outspoken little girl (laughs) who tends to do what her heart desires um, and I think importantly does what I think God's talents gave me and explores into the full ambit. And I think that really goes into where you find me in my careers, right? It's really been about exploring that. Um, So uh, naming a child in the African tradition is a very meaningful event um, that bestows the desires of the parents and the family upon the child with the given name. Your name is Rehama, means compassion and forgiveness. What meaning does your name have in your life and how do you move in the world through this name? So my mother often sits back and says, hey, I made a mistake on calling you. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. And but I'll tell you why, because she thinks I'm too compassionate. Okay. She thinks I'm too forgiving. Mm. And um, so growing up, I didn't have the terminology or the language compassion. Um, so I was told that my name means grace. Mm. And so I grew up knowing that my name means grace and mercy. But I did a Google search and I was like, oh, that's where she's getting compassionate mm. from, right? And so for me, grace was like living in spaces where you um, appreciate the coexistence of others. You appreciate that you exist in a world by mercy, by the grace of God. And therefore, if we are all brought in through this, you know, ethereal being mm -hmm. that gives us our existence, we all have the right to be here. We all have our own rights in terms of how we see the world and how we interact with the world. So I think lately most people tell me that I'm too patient, extremely mm. patient, and that's how I interface with the world, with the reality that what I see as my absolute truth, I have to wake up in the morning and say that what well, if we're all brought into this world and gifted with life, we are all living our absolute truths, and that gives me pause in interacting with others. Yeah. Interesting. So you have a founding partner who's your twin. <laughs> so you co-founders of Womanomics Africa um, with Lebu Beagle. That's yeah? correct. What does Womanomics Africa do? So Womanomics Africa is is the culmination of a journey that we undertook. We have this passion for the development of Africa and this outlook that women can participate more impactfully in Africa's economies and be counted in terms of the, the we, we, I think one measure is GDP, but in terms of economic activity. And we see that intra-Africa trade and intra-Africa cooperation is the route to that. So Womanomics Africa exists as the answer to all these, when you say what are the challenges of women's participation, they're always framed in what is absent. Mm lack of access to this, etc. So we say that we are actually the conduit and the connector and we're connecting women to information. Um, and this is information that gives you commercial insights that you're able to make business decisions around. And that typically can be in the, in the, in the form of, um, you know, convening opportunities where you are able to find information about the work that you're doing. We also connect you to, um, we connect you to capacity building ability to get the skills that you require to work on your business and finally we connect you to an ecosystem we spent the last two years building an ecosystem that has got in place policymakers, development partners and entrepreneurs which is unique because whilst we talk about women's development we typically do it in silos and with partners who are just connected in the one realm but we think that this tripartite of government organizations, development partners, and women entrepreneurs is, is absolutely essential to, to create that reality or ecosystem for, you know, creating the space for growth. Yeah. I must say, you know, we used to have, we haven't had for a long time, our champagne yes. uh, our breakfast where we used to brainstorm. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting seeing the evolution of that value proposition. Because when we used to talk about it, you were still trying to find how you're going to find your space. So it's actually enlightening. So it you, is. I mean, yeah. I think Lebo and I, when we, when we tell people that we actually started talking about this, we, we founded our first company in 2010. Mm. Most people are not aware of that. Mm. The idea of womanomics, and so womanomics is a name that came a lot later on, but the idea of womanomics, we were already interacting and understanding that technology would be the enabler. That came through in 2011. Yeah. We registered an organization and we were already um, connecting to 
to countries in, in India and around the world to find the technology solution that would enable this connecting. Mm. So even as we were having those champagne breakfasts, yeah. you know, you're sitting back and it was really just the combination of all yeah. these powerful, and we, we appreciate that. I mean, we were saying the other day with Lebo, saying, gosh, you know, we had those champagne breakfasts and it was great for us to just reflect because that ecosystem doesn't start externally. That ex ecosystem starts internally. So we are firm believers in the networks that we have and the ability to shape those ideas. And each idea that you bring on board or each party that you bring into your ecosystem helps you to frame yeah. a way of thinking and an outlook. So when's the next one? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> COVID, goodbye. Yeah. Um, one way of describing you is that you cannot be confined to any box. That's what I think anyway. If I ask you to describe who you are, what would you say in just a few sentences? I'm a pathfinder. I think I am a problem solver. I go into spaces and when I find challenges, I'm curious. And so I try to find ways to solve problems because that's what excites me. I'm not excited by maintaining a status quo. I'm excited by finding new, fresh, and energized um, ways of doing something, faster ways, simpler ways, more economic ways. And I'm also curious about how we, put, we include a lot more people. Mm. So I grew up as an African child who's firmly, firmly a believer that we've grown up in privilege. So the background that I have, the opportunities that I've been exposed to are not a reality for many people. So in an appreciation of that privilege, my journey really is to say, if we can do things better, how do we involve other people doing that? Yeah. And you do. You, you like reach out quite a lot to yeah. people. Mm. Issa, your surname is Arabic. Uh -huh. You also speak Setswane, Kiswahili. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Your husband is part Ugandan and part Betty. <laughs> how do you see the concept of identity? What wisdom can you share with us about how we can be enriched through focusing on each other's humanity rather than building walls around ourselves based on our perceived identities? Identity is an interesting one, right? Mm. So whilst my parents are Tanzanian, I think a lot of people are not familiar with the fact that a country can have multiple languages. Mm. So my mom and my dad actually come from two different parts of Tanzania. So technically, they speak two different languages, and the only connecting language is Swahili. Yeah. And my mom would argue that my dad couldn't speak Swahili very well. So growing up, the home language was English, right? And so for us, that notion of identity was locked into language and appreciation, and I think growing up in different countries. I grew up in Botswana called Mugueraguer. I grew up being a foreigner. Did they use that term there oh, as yeah. well? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's oh, so yeah. painful. <laughs> I was very, I must say, I was very young when that song came out. Is it? And I was so upset. But I it mean, was a reality. Then, it was, I just, I thought it was the end of the African dream, really, for me. Oh, really? Mm. That's, how, that's how badly I took that song. I'm desensitized because it's not a song for me. It's, mm. it's, it's part of my reality. But what that brought to the fore, I think, at that very early age, is the fact that people associate with what they find familiar. And language, culture, place that you're from, creates so much of the context of belonging. And I think my parents are the epitome of saying that actually language and culture aside, 
you have to find each other. And if they were able to find each other, connect with each other, and the fact that we were able to go to different countries and grow up in different social cultural contexts, I just got to learn that it's situational. Identity, unless you are grounded in your own firm belief of identity, you will constantly be taken by what is the flavor of the day. So a person who sits back and says, Mukherjee is based on their cultural upbringing, social, social cultural um, conditioning, whereas a person who doesn't see it in that way has been exposed to something different. So the, our truths, again, are really contextual. So identity is something I think that you have, to, you have to be very deliberate about cultivating. And I think that deliberateness requires you to be curious, to explore beyond your current boundaries, and to find what else is possible. And for you to take ownership of the cultural identity you want to create. So we have a multicultural uh, multicultural home. My children identify as South African completely, but they're also very co very comfortable in identifying as Tanzanian. So I have to be very conscious of making sure that they're exposed to both. They're exposed to the grandmothers on both sides. They're actually exposed to the different countries. They go and visit there. And so we are creating a cultural identity, but we're not locked in mm -hmm. to a single one. As a family, we're creating our own that my children can then grow up with and, and move around in the world. Yeah, I suppose that's also an area where I will connect with you because our family is also so multicultural. I always say it's very difficult for me to be one because even my, both my parents are, and their parents are also. So the whole thing of trying to find who you are outside because I think sometimes we use the cultural identities to make ourselves feel better because mm -hmm. as individuals we really haven't taken the time taken the time to learn who we are and to develop who we are so i totally get what you if you are not here tomorrow what do you think we'll miss most about you my sense of humor <laughs> really <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> I think I, you know, I'm, I'm actually chastised for sometimes being seen to not think, take things too seriously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah when I laugh a lot, people actually think I'm a some... pushover. Exactly. Which obviously, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's my sense of humor, and the sense of humor comes with an ability to see things differently, uh, and and to find that. I mean, my sisters. I brought up my sisters as well. And they say, we don't want to tell you stuff because you're going you're gonna to laugh. And I'm like, unless I find the funny yeah. in stuff, I'll be so caught up in myself and my ego mm. and my perspective. I'm not releasing myself to say, yes, there's this and it's really, really bad. But you know what? Two days from now, you look at it like that yeah. and I happen to be finding it funny today. So I think mm. my sense of humor has gotten me through the most challenging, difficult situations. But the ability to pick up that sense of humor in the moment means that I'm able to bounce back faster. Yeah, yeah. So why people will miss it is that those around me will know that if there's any situation, I'm always called on to say, I'm, in, I'm stuck, I'm in trouble, what do we do? And then I'll find a funny way out of it, which really is really about the creative thinking. Yeah. So I guess whilst I'm saying the humor, behind that the, si the, the serious side is that, that ability to look at things from different perspectives very quickly and to find innovative and ingen ingenious ways of solving complex, tiring, and sometimes very tough problems and, and situations. Yeah. Um, like, uh, you know, rule number six. What's rule number six? Don't take yourself so damn seriously. <laughs> well, that's yeah. rule number one. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody gave me that plug um, really? years ago and I put it on my desk. I, it's always there. See, with me, yeah. I would probably now switch it around and say rule number one. Don't yeah. take yourself seriously and do everything else. <laughs> <laughs> you are the licensee of TEDx Littleton Women. Mm. 
what motivated you to acquire the license? It was like so many years ago. We were like crazy women. Uh, but I mean, it takes a lot to organize it. But what motivated you? What motivated me? I used to be driven by what I didn't like. I used to be driven a lot by what I wasn't seeing. And as I said, I come into a space. I'm not the type to sit back and say, oh, this is so bad. That's why I, I won't survive in jobs, right? <laughs> if mm. I don't like it, I'm not going to sit around and moan about it. Mm. I'm going to change it. What I wasn't seeing in the world of economic development and in the world of women's participation and, 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 and activism, I wasn't seeing spaces for amplifying African women's voices. I remember setting out to start up a speaker agency and I'd call all my friends. And I think we were on there. Yeah, I got, I mean, I did the whole thing. Got you guys photographers and you had profile yeah. pictures. Because I realized that um, unless women were occupying spaces and it wasn't just famous women in sports or, you know, who were scantily clad, we would never get the mental acumen out there. So I started knocking on doors, particularly in South Africa, and I'd say, you know, I've got these amazing women who can come and speak about really professional topics. And I kept being turned away because the question that I was being asked is, are they famous and are they on TV? Mm. So I realized that I was working an uphill battle. You know, I've started so many companies. And so at that point in time, I had founded Hadithi Media, which was founded to amplify the voices of African women. And the starting point was a speaker's bureau and also a publishing house. So I knew that we would find ways to get voices in through audio, visual, and um, it was so it was audio and visual and through digital platforms. But my stumbling block was that whilst I could find the women and I knew the women were phenomenal, nobody else was willing to give them a chance to speak because they didn't know them mm. or they didn't fit into society's notion of women that they want to speak to. So we get very comfortable of finding one or two women who represent something. We close the door and say we've got enough women. And that's the challenge that we have. Then we keep rotating the same women. So I, Ted, when I went to Google African women speakers, I found African American women speakers and they were all represented on the TED platform. I thought to myself, this is crazy. Where are the African women? And I realized that a TED license and a TEDx license was actually free. So oh. within six weeks <laughs> lot of, of appreciating work, that, yeah. I set up my first TEDx Littleton Women experience. You know, I called all my friends and said, you have to come and speak. You have to come and speak. At that time, it wasn't very well known. Mm. Oh, I, I knew it. I just was not oh. willing to do it at that time. <laughs> so you, you're a different kettle of fish. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I eventually did it. You eventually did. So what inspired me was the absence of African women's voices mm. and not staying in the problem. What inspired me was an opportunity to create the difference. Because what I've realized in life is that when people say no, it's because they don't know an alternative. So if you are going to change the status quo, you've got to take on the burden of creating a model and creating the proof of what you're talking about. Yeah. So my burden of proof was there are African women out there. Mm. And not only are they locally relevant, they're globally relevant. As soon as I started to put African women on the TEDx platform and being able to do that year after year, I don't have to call anybody now to speak on the platform and I don't have to make noise about what we're trying to do. It's obvious. Yeah. Everybody wants... We, we are like that, which is so unfortunate. I always think that we want to um, not build people, but we want to ride when they're already in there, you know? Can we stay there a little bit? Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, for me, I find it so unfortunate, which is also why we're not good at peer-to-peer -peer helping. 
Mm. It's not just the mentoring part, just peer-to-peer -peer helping. When, when people can eclipse you, potentially, then you're like, okay, but how else are we going to become as um, amazing as the Fortune 500 women that we end up going to mentor? See my deep sigh. We have developed, and I'm, I'm very unapologetic oh, we, about this. Yeah, who mentor us, not we mentor. We end up going to be mentored by them. This is part of the challenge. So this is, when you, when you say for me TEDx is more than just the women speakers, it's mm. amplifying the reality that the talent is here. Mm. It is locally relevant, globally relevant, and that acumen is one we should tap into. We have been remiss as Africans particularly in taking up the challenge to create our own, to support our own. And unfortunately, when you do talk about it, you are labeled feminist, you are labeled activist. Those are the most powerful words, and yet they are used almost in a derogatory way, which takes away the power of the work that needs to happen. For me, feminism is really about creating equality. Activism is about changing a status quo. We have unfortunately put into positions of power maintenance crews of the status quo. Yeah. Those who are so comfortable with things being the way they are, they are not appreciating the fact that they have taken a custodianship of power. And that power has got great responsibility to do what is necessary to create the new reality. Because we are so founded and we are so protective of what we have achieved, we've forgotten our responsibility. I make no bones about the fact that I am almost the first generation privileged African child. Why? I was born into a family that didn't have to live through a war. I was born into a family where we do not necessarily have entrepreneurs but had the opportunity to do that. That doesn't mean that the fight is over. That means that I have a new fight. Yeah. Our new fight is economic emancipation yeah. and participation. Yeah. We're getting so stuck in the fact that we've made it, we've got all these trappings and, and, and demonstrations of what success looks like. We have not sat down and said, but to create this future, for African child, the future for our children, what do we need to do? do? Do I have people who over the last 20 years, I mean I've been an entrepreneur for over 15 years, I was an entrepreneur in my 20s when my peers were still growing up the ladder. So I always sit back and laugh at, you know, I'm a CEO and I'm an executive, I'm like, throw away your title. Every single entrepreneur is a CEO and you have, you know, the, the troubles and the struggles that they go through of creating, imagining and, and fashioning something that didn't exist is totally underrated. Yeah. But importantly, over 15 years, we can count on the one hand how many other people will sit back and say, let me bring you into my ecosystem. But what we're finding 15 years down the line, their children have come out of school. Yeah. We're getting calls to now mentor yes, their children, precisely. to put their children into our companies. Give them a job. It's like, yeah, but uh, I'm still how, an SMME. How do you expect me to be giving them a job? So I think that we, you know, when you're sitting in, in, in comfortable spaces, the people yeah. who become entrepreneurs, it's not because they don't see a better way, but it, it's not because they won't survive in corporate and makes them lesser. I think entrepreneurs are totally underrated in yeah. terms of what they can shift yeah. and change. But what we haven't created is a symbiotic ecosystem where entrepreneurs are working with corporates to strengthen value chains. And I think people in corporate have been way too comfortable and not facing the reality that their children are coming up and there's not enough space where they're working yeah. to absorb them. So the entrepreneur agenda is not just for entrepreneurs, it's for everybody. everybody. Yeah, well said my friend. I, I, I'm so tired of repeating the same thing, <laughs> I really am. You speak a number of languages, um, which one do you dream in? It's situational. Really? 
it's situational. Because I think that the thing, I, what I love about languages, and I think I learned, my mother, like, you know, she, she, <laughs> she can speak a number of languages and she picks them up very quickly. So I used to say at some point in time um, that I dream in Kiswahili, mm -hmm. right? Because, and, and, and my parents used to laugh, that I actually learned Swahili as an adult, not as a child. So we were always castigated that in the countries that we lived in, which language do you speak? It means you're not an African if you only speak English, right? Mm -hmm. But I also learned the importance of language. So I would dream in Sudwana, but that's because I'm trying to, I was learning at that point in time. So I was immersing myself in the language. And when you immerse yourself in the language, you're getting familiar with the culture, that influences your dreaming. If you're fully Im embedded into that, you're immersed in the dreaming. I'm currently I'm dreaming in English. Mm -hmm. But when I'm stuck, <laughs> I can see my, 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 my late father, I can, I, it'll come in Swahili. When I'm, when I'm totally frustrated, um, Swahili comes out. My, my, and, that's, and, and I'm, saying, I'm talking about the fact that I didn't grow up speaking Swahili, yeah. but I'm culturally embedded in the language. What's the most courageous decision you've taken in your life thus far? And <laughs> what drove so you to that <laughs> decision? Everybody says I'm always making courageous decisions. In the moment, you're not thinking, I'm being courageous. Mm. You know, it's like in the moment, you're not thinking, I'm being tenacious, right? Yeah. I think I've made some bold decisions. So one of the bold decisions I made very early on in my, in, in my career, um, I think in the first couple of years of leaving university, um, I lived 21 years of my life on a foreigner's uh, permit. Um, so, you know, a, not, 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 not of, of a foreign ID. And the bold decision then was to leave a country where it found a job as a foreigner. That's the context, right? If you're living on a foreign ID, you are not always going to have access to the privilege of being a local in terms of access to work. Yeah. Um, and living as a foreigner, graduating in a country as a foreigner, means that you're less likely to get a job in that country as a foreigner because there are local priorities to give jobs to locals. So that's the context of me saying that I've, I grew up the first 21 years of my life at living on a foreigner's permit. Yeah. So the bold decision for me was having found a job as a foreigner at a time when I think there was like 40 to 60% unemployment, leaving that to come to um, get married and meet my husband in South Africa. In fact, the plan wasn't even get married, was to relocate to South Africa um, at that point in time, where in other countries, I was not, I was not like anything special, but coming to South Africa, supposedly being a black accountant, that was a big deal, right? So it was a bold move to come in and then find a social cultural context as a black person that was totally different to anything that I'd ever grown up in. And that was? That was, race was not something that was in my vocabulary. And not because it didn't exist, but it wasn't so pervasive. It wasn't so pervasive such that it colored absolutely every perspective of my language. So when things used to happen growing up, we were able to talk about bad people. Um, we were able to talk about behavior um, of individuals. Coming into South Africa, a few months, like a couple of years later, my friends would sit back and say, yes, sir, everything is about race. Yeah. Because you no longer talked about the issue. Race became the conversation. I watch my daughters growing up now, um, and in the first years of their life, race is not an issue. However, as they grow up through the system, it is everything. Mm. My eldest daughter is so racially conscious I'm so scared about her future because I'm like, in a global world, 
how are we moving beyond the and 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 I'm and I'm not taking away the fact that it's important. Yeah. But when it is the beginning and the end of the conversation, how do we have conversations about humanity, about what's right, about what makes sense, with the spirit of how can we do things differently? And I think that I think that's been the biggest challenge for me to find my humanity and 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 to 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 find the humanity in the conversations that we have around our future. Hmm. It's interesting to see the race issue from a different point of view because we so immersed in it because we grew up in it you've seen as a color <laughs> so if i'm speaking in this accent oh as an african person you're not supposed to have this accent so already that's an issue uh, so in everything so if you're doing well mm. it's kind of like oh you like oh okay you can do that it's always like your color it is color but i think there's there's many more i mean there's this race the, the, there's the race aspect and then there's the foreign aspect, right? Mm -hmm. I will never be South African enough. I only carry a South African identity. But it helps. I think where you are better off is because you speak the, la the local, one of the local languages. So you immerse. If somebody didn't, well, they'll hear your name and they'll think about it. But because you're part of... That's a whole conversation, part okay. of. Okay. <laughs> like, that's another whole discussion. Um, you say that storytelling is a way to engage that allows mm. the organization to define where it is going and to communicate to different audiences what it does. Can you explain what you mean? I think we haven't embraced enough of our African um, identity in our corporate outlook. And I say that because I think when I talk about storytelling, storytelling, language, culture are all one thing. As an African woman, uh, or just as an, as an African in, in corporate South Africa, I just found that, and less so than in Botswana. In Botswana, I didn't find that I had to take off who I am at home to appear as this thing in the workplace, right? And I think we've created a particular story in the workplace around what it means to be working, what it means to be successful, what language you're speaking and what content you're consuming. At one point in time, I would sit and say, can you tell us a successful African business person? And we would struggle to find that. And if I was to then say, find me a successful African woman who's in business, we would struggle to do that, even if we were to just limit it to the South African context. And I think part of that is our inability to tell our own story, to tell our own reality that infuses our cultural context in the world of business. We keep separating the things that we do and how we do them in terms of how we're interacting with the world of work. We're not telling our stories. Our stories belong to after hours. And our stories are not part of how we do things. So I think um, there was a beautiful example, and of course it's going to disappear as soon as I have to talk about it. But in the world of work, right, as an African woman, I, I, for a very long time, hair was an issue. Hair was, you know, and the story we'd created about hair is, is, is really about how it makes you look professional or not. Mm. I had like dreadlocks from the time I, I left university and went into the world of work. Right now, the stories that we are telling African women is that we have to have makeup on fleek. Oh. Before I will look professional, before you will engage with me, because I haven't told the story of my identity in the world of business. 
I haven't told the story of the fact that I actually don't need makeup, I don't need false eyelashes, I don't need a weave mm. and to look a particular way in order to be considered a professional. I shouldn't have to come with all my degrees on the table and I'm not even going to get there because I don't look a certain way. And that, that idea of looking a certain way is, is, is connected to the stories that we have told about what success, business and engagement look like. So I think businesses need to factor in the storytelling component and leaders factor in what stories that they are promoting as the stories of business. Yeah. Now that you were talking about hair, I mean, just talking to my hairdresser, and I'm saying no chemicals in my hair, and he was struggling with that. So he had to curl my hair without any chemicals. It's like, no, I'm taking my power back. The first time I put chemicals, it was my mother as a child. Yeah, it wasn't my choice, uh, which is why I always used to shave my hair. I haven't shaved it for a long time. But I mean, those are part of the identity, the, the half part of ourselves that we bring. If you want to experience excellence, even in the workplace or in any context, if a part of you is always hidden, how much of your excellence are you really bringing forth? But that's another conversation. <laughs> your companies are structured partnerships. Yeah. yeah. What is the wisdom you can share for people who are looking um, to do business with a partner. What wisdom do you share in terms of how you think about it? So when I'm taking the word structured partnerships, I'm not taking the, the literal translation that mm. it's a, it's, it's a yeah. partnership. It's mm. really about the fact that I have chosen to go into business with other yeah. people. I've tried it both ways to do. I've, I've, I've been in business with people. I've always looked for like-minded people. I think that African proverb, to go fast, go alone, to go far, go with others. Mm. I think that's really been my outlook in life, this reality that, you know, you can only go so far. And my mind is limited. What yeah. I know is limited. Unless I'm well, that's why we have break, break, champagne, champagne breakfast, breakfast. <laughs> yes, which okay. is coming soon, right? <laughs> Yeah, My mind can only construe what I'm exposing myself to. The minute I bring another mind in, I'm allowing myself the vulnerability to acknowledge, first of all, my fallibility and the limitation of my knowledge. That automatically allows me to start factoring in other perspectives, just in that partnership. Yeah. It's a tussle. I mean, my partner currently and I, we are very strong-minded, both of us. And yes, we are very, our focus and direction is the same. But that ability to bounce off at any point in time, what you're seeing, what you're doing, and what you're reflecting. But importantly, business is not just about the good days. So in the really, really tough days, I've found that as an individual, it was so much harder to dig deep because you have to wake up every morning and, and, and be that voice for yourself to say, I'm getting up. And when you're in business, you've got to present it to the rest of the world. So that ability to have somebody like, you know, hold my hand. For me, yeah. it's almost like a, can we hold our hand? Let's walk together. And when I can't see my blind spots, you can look out for them. Yeah. And where I'm falling short, you can talk to me and say, you can do this. You can do better. We talk about mentorship and sponsorship. My partnerships and my, my business collaborations, it's co-mentorship right from the core saying, I've got you. Mm. Yeah, I must say for those that choose not to have partners, you can also do it even uh, with me. I, I consult a lot. I'm always like doing even snap research if I'm going to do something. What's your point of view? What's your mm. point of view? And when you're going through hard times, if you have people around you who are honest, mm. it's kind of like, hey, pipeline is tough. This is what you must try. I think it's just about honesty as well. Just, Absolutely. Yeah. So the difference is that one in, a, in a, what you're calling a structured partnership is that choice to formalize yeah. it, right? Yeah. Um, and, and to formalize a, um, an associated 
co-accountability. Yeah. Um, so having run Hadithi Media, I think independently, that was the challenge, that, that accountability when, um, when one didn't have the energy anymore. Yeah. And the kind of work that one is doing, the kind of work that's linked to, um, I always say it's bigger than me, it's bigger than us, and not in an egotistical way, but just appreciating the impact of some of the work that one does, that ability to say, I need some time out. Oh. I mean, after Hadith, I took about six months sabbatical just to find myself again because you get so caught up in this thing in this world and what you want to create and 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 that need to step back uh, and say but what else can i do how else can i use my talents yeah what legacy are you striving to leave in the world mine is very clear to do that my daughters don't have to come across the same stumbling blocks that i've had to because of my gender that um, that the, the, the challenges that I have found, I don't leave them as challenges, but leave them as opportunities. And for me, um, I guess womanomics actually represents the legacy that uh, um, I'm, I'm looking to leave, as well as, as, as Lebu, which is creating a powerful ecosystem of women in, 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 in trade and development that can truly stand up in the next 10, 20, 30 years and then long after that can stand up and say we are truly, fully active engagement or partners in the growth of the African continent. But not as a, I'm going out to war every day, but by a birthright, by an awakening. The fact that I've woken up in this space, I have the right to participate, I've got access to the tools and the resources, and I know my way around this space, and therefore I'm walking into a space where I can operate, as opposed to still finding spaces I need to build. Mm -hmm. We can chat forever. So before we wrap up, what's on your bucket list still to do? Oh, I've, I, dude, I thought about this, ne? I thought to myself, what do you still need to do? I'm not going to skydive is one thing I know I'm not going <laughs> to <Yeah. laughs> yeah. I want to travel all of Africa's countries. Hmm. I want to be able to go and visit every single one of African countries. I'm not limiting it to that, but I'm saying amongst other things, I truly want to understand and appreciate this continent and what it yeah. truly It is a pity. Um, we, you know, when I think about Mali and uh, there are so many other countries that I still want to go to. Yep. So on that list, start ticking after COVID, obviously. After COVID? Yes, yeah, stop the trip again. So in wrapping up, um, what wisdom would you like to leave us with if this was your last conversation? Hmm, drama, yes. <laughs> oh my, the pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's the wisdom you would like us to have? It sounds very cliched, but I think particularly in times of COVID, um, everybody's going through their own reality. Um, um, and, and I think that the wisdom I would leave is let's be kind. Let us do no harm. Let us be kind and where we can support and help, let's lend a hand. And let us be conscious, consciously looking for opportunities to help. Let us acknowledge the privilege that we all sit with and say, if we are all in this together, and I think that's what COVID kind of showed, right? It's not an individualistic thing. If we're truly all in this together, what can we do? Ree, thank you for the privilege of your time and for sharing your wisdom. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with another wise African. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Durum Somi. 
please also like, follow and subscribe to our channel and share the wisdom with your friends. I would love it if you could rate and review as well. Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi is also available on YouTube, Facebook Watch, Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. Enjoy the wisdom journey.